So a number of you were out of town for New Year's Day, but we did start a series on the Lord's Supper last week. And as a church, we've been discussing uh, what it would look like to celebrate the Lord's Supper more often. But before making any adjustments, we thought it best to equip all of us in a greater understanding of of the Lord's Supper, what it is, um, and a greater appreciation for our time together in taking the Lord's Supper If you missed, I'd really encourage you to listen to the sermon last week because it serves as the foundation for for all that we're going to be covering in coming weeks. But last week, uh, we looked at only the origin and the purpose for the Lord's Supper. We first asked, you know, where did it come from? And we saw from the Gospels that it came from Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled and transformed the Passover. Passover was a meal that defined Israel as a community after God had rescued them from Egypt. The Passover reminded Israel that they were once a helpless and lost people, and they couldn't do any things to rescue, them, rescue themselves, uh, but God, in His grace, stepped in, and He delivered them from death. He freed them from slavery, and brought them out of slavery, and gave them a covenant. And they came under, that, under His covenant as a people. And as long as you identified with the Lamb's blood in the Passover, uh, that's who you were. That, that meal shaped your identity. You were delivered from death, you were freed from bondage, and you were in covenant with Yahweh. Well, Jesus' death fulfilled all that the Passover pointed to. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. And it's, and it's through his death that we experience the ultimate, the ultimate exodus deliverance where God brings us out of bondage to sin. He delivers us from death because of sin. And he brings us under a new covenant in Jesus' blood. So now, the Lord's Supper defines our identity. The Lord's Supper defines us as a new covenant people. Uh, All that we are and all that we will become, it revolves around the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We then asked, why do we take the Lord's Supper? And there were four purposes that we covered. We take the Lord's Supper to proclaim and to remember God's past deliverance in Christ. Uh, Others have said that where the gospel goes assumed, the gospel goes forgotten. The Lord's Supper does not allow us to forget the gospel. It's why we celebrate it as a church. In fact, the only two ordinances given to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, do not let us forget the gospel. The gospel is the very foundation and lifeline for the church, and the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. A second purpose was to participate in the gospel's benefits and submit to the gospel's demands. In the Lord's Supper, the Lord strengthens our faith by way of announcing again and again and again all of the benefits of Jesus' death. And third, we eat the Supper, to renew our commitment to one another in Christ. 
And fourth, we eat and drink to anticipate Christ's return in glory. He is coming again. So we covered these four purposes. And corresponding to these four purposes, we looked at four looks. We're going to look backwards when we come to the table at what God did for us in Christ in the past, on the cross and in the resurrection. We're going to look up to receive from the Lord His grace in the new covenant blessings. And we're going to look around at each other whom God has given uh, into us in Christ. And we're going to look forward to the future when Jesus returns. Those are the four looks. So the, the four purposes affected the way or how we come to the Lord's Supper. Today's message expands on how we come to participate in the Lord's Supper by giving us one more look. I've mentioned backwards, upwards, around, and forwards. There's one more look I want to cover today, and that is the look within. The look within. I skipped this last week because we're going to cover it today, but also because I know how introspective we can be as a congregation already. I wanted the other four to sit on you longer. Sometimes that's a strength, this this self-examination. It's a strength in that we take sin very seriously because God takes sin very seriously. We don't want the Lord's Supper, you know, coming with flippant and thoughtless attitudes. At other times, however, that introspection leaves some of us spiraling into patterns of self-righteousness and perfectionism that ignore what God has achieved for us in Christ. The self-examination becomes an end and and not a reason to cast ourselves once again on the mercies of Christ. Paul says we must participate in the supper in a worthy manner, but we interpret him to mean that we must make ourselves worthy people. Have I repented enough? Did I confess all my sins? How could I ever know for sure if I did? If I take, am I going to get sick and die on the way home? The questions go while the bright assurance of Christ's victory over sin fades behind clouds of guilt and condemnation. That's not new to church history. Uh, In his essay on the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper, Greg Allison writes that at one time, particularly in Scotland and the Netherlands, elders would visit members of the congregation prior to each celebration of the supper to determine whether they were fit to partake of the supper on the Lord's Day. They were given communion tokens, which they would present at the worship service to indicate that they had been approved for the partaking of the sacrament. Sadly, in some conservative branches of the Reformed and Presbyterian churches, only a few older saintly characters felt worthy of partaking, which meant that the majority of the congregation never experienced the blessing of the sacrament until they reached that stage in life. That's a problem. That's a problem not because they were taking the supper seriously. It's a problem because they were failing to see the gospel of forgiveness that was proclaimed through the supper. So what I want to do this morning is answer how we should participate in the Lord's Supper. And in some, I see Paul encouraging us to come to the Lord's Supper as unworthy participants in a worthy manner with one another. To come to the Lord's Supper as unworthy participants in a worthy manner with one another. And the, the main verses we're going to cover are 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. 
And then 1 Corinthians 11. So let's look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 10. And they will be a review for some of you who were here last week, but, but they shape how we understand the problem Paul addresses in chapter 11. So verse 16 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So when we eat the bread, we are, we are picturing something. We are picturing what the one bread signifies. That Christ gave His body for all of us. It is His death that makes us one people. We might have different team loyalties, different hobbies, different political ideology, economic status. We might prefer CNN or Fox News, the beach or mountains, vegetarian or meat. But the one thing we all have in common is our need for a Savior is our need for Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is the meal given to the church where the many are made one in Christ. At least it's supposed to be. That's not happening with some in the Corinthian church. So let's look now at chapter 11, verse 17. It says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When therefore you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here's the problem. You've got some rich folks in the church who are despising the poor folks in the church. And they're doing it by stuffing their faces while the poor goes hungry at the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was celebrated in conjunction with a larger meal, uh, much like the Last Supper was. In this case, though, some of the people in the church are wrecking the design of the Lord's Supper. Remember from chapter 10, verse 17, the Lord's Supper is where the many become one. But some of them are dividing the many. The poor are being divided from the rich. And it's so bad that Paul says, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you eat. In other words, they have so perverted what the supper signifies that their actions turn it into not the Lord's Supper. It's your own supper you're eating. Paul rebukes them. 
And then he brings up the Lord's Supper tradition in verses 23 to 26 as support for his rebuke. That's not something we often consider, is it? When, uh, a lot of times we use these very words of Paul when, when we're uh, eating together, the Lord's Supper. It's, we don't often think that, that these words have a context. They're an argument that Paul is making as support for his rebuke. It's not Paul's you know, pastoral handbook on what to say and what not to say at the Lord's table. So what is this argument that Paul is making? Let's see it in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's that's the whole point of why he spelled out the tradition once more for them. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What's the argument? The argument is that. If they understood the tradition rightly, they would recall that the Lord's Supper proclaims the death of Christ and what the death of Christ implies for the church. The Lord's Supper proclaims that Christ willingly laid down His life. Jesus instituted the Supper, it says, on the night He was betrayed. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus had him dip the morsel and sent him out in the night. Go and do what you need to do. He didn't gather a group of men to protect him from Judas. That's because he was willingly laying down his life. The Lord's Supper proclaims that Christ gave His body for us. That means He became our willing substitute. He was the substitution for the curse we could not bear. He was the sacrifice for the death we couldn't die. He was the atonement for the sins that we could not remove. He was the propitiation for the punishment we could not satisfy. And note the plural in verse 24, you. In Texas, it's y'all, right? He gave his body for y'all, you all. Not just you as an individual, but you all. Jesus' death doesn't discriminate based on ethnicity and social class. All of us had the same problem. All of us were separated from God because of our sin. Nobody can boast as if it was by their own works or their own riches or their own accomplishments that God saved them. But that's how the rich were acting in Corinth. Sometimes it's the way we act. The Lord's Supper also proclaims that Jesus' blood establishes the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 is where the new covenant is articulated, one of the places anyway. And it looks to a day when the old covenant would be fulfilled and replaced by a new covenant with better promises. Promises like inner transformation of the heart, 
uh, for the whole community. Uh, unbreakable fellowship with God for the whole community. Intimate knowledge of the Lord by everyone in the community. The final forgiveness of sin for all in the community. Jesus' blood not only creates a new people, but it then it binds all of those people together under the new covenant with God. So what does the supper proclaim? Christ's willing sacrifice for the good of others to bring them under the new covenant in union with himself as one people. Do the actions of, the, of some of the Corinthians align with that proclamation? The answer should be obvious. It is no. The, the behavior of those welcomed to the supper must exemplify the Lord of that supper who gave his life for others, who humbled himself to serve others. The behavior of those who eat at the supper must align with the meaning of that supper. If the meaning is is the many becoming one, you can't show up despising some of the many. You can't show up with biases towards some of the many. You can't show up with your favorite people and ignore others. If the meaning is you are freed from your slavery to idols, you can't show up tight-fisted with your idols. If the meaning is laying down your life to see others lifted up, you can't show up putting down others to exalt yourself. They just, these things just don't fit together. It's like a clown at a funeral. It doesn't fit. It's as if some of them are showing up to the supper wearing Judas's jersey, not Jesus's. You see, Judas was the first to rebel against the meaning of the supper. To defile the supper by dividing the body is to join the enemy who conspires against the Messiah and his kingdom. So Paul goes on to help the congregation out here so this doesn't happen anymore. And he does it with a warning in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. So that's where I'm getting the look within. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. To eat and drink in an unworthy manner is to eat and drink with an attitude and behavior that lies about the gospel. It's essentially what's going on here. 
to eat and drink with an attitude and behavior that lies about the gospel. God gave them a meal, so the church proclaims the gospel. But they are abusing the meal, and thus perverting the message, the gospel that it proclaims. Which is what the Corinthians do with a whole lot of stuff they've been given. They've been given leaders, they boast in them, and it distorts the gospel. They've been given gifts, and they abuse them, and it distorts the gospel. They've been given a meal, and they abuse it, and it distorts the gospel. They are guilty for despising what Christ's death accomplished. The Lord even threatens judgment. He threatens temporal judgments like weakness and sickness to motivate repentance. And the purpose here is that, it says in verse 32, that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's not to say that we should make a direct correlation and say that all sickness must be the result of some specific sin. The book of Job and John 9 are great examples of why we cannot go there. But it's also true that sometimes, sometimes, the Lord will use sickness to discipline us for specific sins. And in this we see that God's love, as a father, refuses to let His people remain in their sin. He will use extreme measures to keep us from forsaking Christ and from suffering condemnation with the world. So it's one of His means keeping the saints persevering. How does a genuine believer respond to this? This this warning that Paul has given. We can't respond with cliches. Once saved, always saved. I'm good. I don't need to evaluate myself. We can't respond by looking at something we did in the past. Hey, I committed myself to the Lord when I was eight. I'm good. We can't respond with things we're doing now. Hey, I'm a pastor. I go to church. I read my Bible. He can't be referring to me. No, the genuine believer, and this is how all the warnings work in Scripture, the genuine believer humbles himself before the Lord and seeks to understand himself in light of the death of Christ. Does my attitude in life fit the gospel that the Lord's Supper proclaims? We've got to be careful here. Self-examination is always in relation to Christ. It's always in relation to Christ. When Paul says, let a person examine himself, he's not saying we do this as an end in itself. Where we now become the self-savior. I've got all my boxes checked. I did all the right things. I've said all the right prayers, done all the right things, and we end up saving. He's not telling us that this is the kind of self-examination. The self-examination we do is always in relation to Christ to determine whether we recognize what our share in Christ truly means. He says, are we discerning the body rightly in verse 29? That means, do we truly grasp what the body of Christ means for us in our vertical relationship with God and in our horizontal relationships with each other? Is my identity bound up with the death of Christ and what His death implies about the way I relate to God and the way I treat my brothers and sisters? 
And that's the question for us every time we eat the Lord's Supper. That's the question that must move us to repentance where where our life doesn't align with the gospel. The only time that we really see Paul telling someone not to eat, and I want you to get this, because there are some wrong views of of the Lord's Supper out there, who shouldn't eat and who should eat. The only time we really see Paul telling someone not to eat is in 1 Corinthians 5, where you have someone who professes to be a brother but isn't acting like a brother, he's boasting about it. He's sleeping with his stepmom and boasting about it. If that's the state someone is in, they should not eat the Lord's Supper. In a biographical sketch on John Calvin, uh, John Piper tells a story of a time when Calvin had to guard some of the libertines from eating at the Lord's Supper. So these are the people who are, are lawless. And, and the story goes like this. It says, when, when Calvin began his ministry in Geneva in 1536, at the age of 27, there was a law that said a man could keep only one mistress. Just one. Even after Calvin had been preaching as a pastor in St. Peter's Church, for over 15 years, the immorality was a plague even in the church. The libertines boasted in their license. For them, the communion of saints meant the common possessions of goods, houses, bodies, and wives. So they practiced adultery and indulged in sexual promiscuity in the name of Christian freedom. And at that same time, they claimed the right to sit at the Lord's table. The crisis of the communion came to a head in 1553. A well-to-do libertine named Berthelier was forbidden by the consistory of the church to eat the Lord's Supper, but he appealed the decision to the council of the city, which overturned the ruling. This created a crisis for Calvin, who would not think of yielding to the state the rights of excommunication, nor of admitting a libertine to the Lord's table. The issue, as always, was the glory of Christ. He wrote to Veret, I took an oath that I had resolved rather to meet death than profane so shamefully the holy supper of the Lord. My ministry is abandoned if I suffer the authority of the consistory to be trampled upon and extend the supper of Christ to open scoffers. I should rather die a hundred times than subject Christ to such foul mockery. The Lord's day of testing arrived. The libertines were present to eat at the Lord's supper. It was a critical moment for the Reformed faith in Geneva. The sermon had been preached, the prayers had been offered, and Calvin Calvin descended from the pulpit to take his place beside the elements at the communion table. The bread and wine were duly consecrated by him, and he was now ready to distribute them to the communicants. Then, on a sudden, a rush was begun by the troublers in the direction of the communion table. Calvin flung his arms around the sacramental vessels as if to protect them from sacrilege while his voice rang through the building, These hands you may crush. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take. My blood is yours. You may shed it. But you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. After this, the sacred ordinance was celebrated with a profound silence and under solemn awe and all present as if the deity himself had been visible among them. 
Calvin was right in that we cannot eat in a manner that despises the glory of Christ. We cannot eat in a way that despises the salvation He achieved for us. The point, though, isn't to create a church, to, to create in the church this, this idea of widespread refraining from the Lord's Supper. The point is widespread repentance. That's why Paul wrote it. Let a person examine himself and so eat. To help us as a church in this look within, we normally send out a notice in the e-news when we're taking the Lord's Supper together here at Redeemer. That's to give us time to think about it. Prior to taking the supper, it would be good to keep the things in mind here in 1 Corinthians 11 and examine yourself according to the instructions here. Examine yourself in in relation to Christ. But what might that examination include? I'll give you five things to consider here. One, examine how Christ's death exposes you before God as a ruined sinner. Some of the Corinthians view themselves as superior to others. In particular, the poor. But they have forgotten the gospel. They have forgotten how sinful Christ's death says they truly are. We are bankrupt, defiant to the core. In ourselves, there's nothing to lift God's smile upon us. No worldly status, social class, ethnic flair, noble deed will make, us, will make up for all of our filth. When we examine ourselves in this light, we see we have nothing to boast in. Nothing to brag about or, or shove in the face of others. Look, look at how good I am. Look at how well I do my job. Just like Passover reminded Israel of their desperate predicament before God saved them, so the death of Jesus reminds us of ours. Discerning the body rightly will include agreeing with God's verdict on our sin, which was pronounced in the death of Jesus. We're truly without hope apart from Him. We truly deserve all of His wrath that was poured out upon Him. The Gospel says we're all unworthy. But it's by seeing ourselves as unworthy that the worthy participation will follow. Number two, examine how Christ's death saved you to belong to God. Examine how... Christ's death saved you to belong to God. Christ's death not only exposes us for the sinners we truly are, it also proclaims Christ for the Savior He really is. It says His body was given for us. For us, sinful as we were. Partaking of the supper in a worthy manner does not depend on the worthiness of the person taking the supper, but the worthiness of the one the supper proclaims. Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy to sit at the table, and it's only through our union with Him that we find a place at the table. So cling to Him. Repent and cling to Him. And find your seat at the table. Christ has made complete provision for all of our sins. When we trust in Him, Christ gives us 
all His righteousness. So with sins forgiven and all of His righteousness given to us, we then have fellowship and peace with God. And when you have God, you have everything else the world, everything else the world will tell you is significant and popular and important and glamorous. It just pales in comparison. You won't show up boasting in your riches on Sunday when you've seen the glory of Christ. You will show up saying, Christ is all. Moreover, we we now belong to God. Before, we belonged to sin and Satan. In Christ, we now belong to God. He determines what we give ourselves to and how we give ourselves to others as part of... uh, if we read further in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now that we belong to God, He determines our life, our steps, how we treat each other, no longer the sinful world system. Which brings us to another point of examination. Examine how Christ's death unites you to Christ's body. Examine how Christ's death unites you to Christ's body. Again, look around. This is the look around. The Lord's Supper is a meal that shapes the community by what we all share in together, namely Christ. Yes, we have other shared interests that we enjoy, but that's not what creates the church, and it is not what sustains true fellowship in the church. Christ does. He is our foundation. Examining ourselves in light of Jesus' death should remind us that we are, in fact, one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Whatever your ethnicity, whatever your life stage, whatever you're in, we are one body in Christ. The Lord's Supper is where the many are made one. Are you genuinely glad to be in fellowship with every member in this local church? This is the local expression, one local expression, of what the larger universal church is about. So, Are you glad to be in fellowship with every member? You think of faces and names in this church. And are you truly glad to be in fellowship with every one of them? Is there any tendency to favor some brothers or sisters over others? I mean, it's good that you have shared interests. I'm not trying to diminish. It's a blessing to have shared interests with others. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about favoritism here. Is there any sense that you just you've just grown content putting up with some people but really have no desire to imitate the Lord's self-giving sacrifice for them? You see a church thrives only when its members lay down their lives for each other. A church lives when we're all dying. Feasting on Christ at the table entails becoming like Christ toward the others at the table. 
In that sense, we become what we eat, to use a popular slogan. If you find yourself lacking in this area, repent. Confess your sins before God. The beauty of the gospel is that it frees us to confess sin and assures us that God forgives us in Christ. I've approached brothers and sisters before that I had offended, before taking the the supper, even sometimes during the service uh, on a Sunday morning. And they have listened to my confession and they have forgiven me. And those are the Sundays where the Lord's Supper tastes the sweetest. Listen, Christ is our righteousness. And that frees us to walk with integrity before each other and transparency. So don't hide. Don't hide the things you're thinking about others. Seek forgiveness and reconciliation with people that come to mind. Number four, examine how Christ's death compels you to love others. How is Christ's death compelling you to love others? You know, after preaching the death of Christ here, Paul concludes in verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together eat to, to eat, wait, uh, wait for one another. And the idea is, welcome one another. You, you care for one another. You put the, the interest of that person, you put it above your own, and you serve. You humble yourself. You grant each other proper fellowship at the table. Such love did not characterize some of the Corinthians, but it should characterize us. Christ's love must shape our affections for one another and our interactions with one another. If it doesn't, then it would be wise to reflect on the first three that I just mentioned. Because it is only in seeing the cross of Christ more clearly and seeing and savoring that cross and its significance for the whole community that will actually grow in our love and affection for others. And one more, I want you to examine how Christ's death is sufficient to perfect the whole church in glory. So I'm combining the look within here to the look ahead to the future. Christ, examine how Christ's death is sufficient to perfect the whole church in glory, not just you. Not just you. Paul says that we proclaim Christ's death until He comes. And part of that message is very sobering. I mean, when Christ returns, He returns to judge. Every person will give an account before God for what He did in the body, whether good or evil. But Christ's return also sets before us a glorious hope. When He returns, He returns to save His church forever from their sins. Every blood-bought saint will be immediately glorified as they behold Christ face to face. 1 John 3 tells us that we shall all be like Him because we will actually see Him as He is. There may be a lot of things about other people in this room that irritate you. I might irritate you sometimes. But you know one of our chief problems? We normally don't view each other in light of the gospel and what it is able to accomplish in our lives, wherever we're at. We want everybody else to be immediately glorified except us. 
We're fine if our, if our sanctification takes a long time, just not everybody else's. We don't view each other in light of what the gospel promises that we are becoming. We don't view each other in light of how sufficient Jesus' death is to perfect us in the coming kingdom. Basically, when it comes to others, we underestimate the gospel. We underestimate what Christ is able to do in them and to them. But Christ's return, which the Lord's Supper also proclaims, should remind us of what we will all become on that day. The kingdom of God will not be characterized by ethnic pride or economic division or social status or age preference or affinity favorites. There will be one choir of redeemed saints united through the blood of the Lamb. Nobody's going to be boasting in organic and paleo versus, you know, the other stuff that tastes good. It's just true. Nobody's going to be looking down upon the other because they don't do things the way we like. They're not as clean as we are. There will be one choir. There will, be, there will never be any tension, nor awkwardness, or fear, or envy, or strife, or anything that would cause division in the body. No sinful impulses will be present. Every day with each other will be what Galatians speaks of as love, kindness, peace, joy, patience, gentleness. Celebration. No sins in us will be hiding God's glory or hindering the enjoyment of God's glory as it's reflected in each other. You see, Matthew 13, 43 says that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And if you combine that with Matthew 5, 16, that our light should so shine before men that people see your good, good, your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven, what do you get? All of our good deeds in the age to come will be reflecting and shining the glory of Christ. This is why we're shining like the sun. That's how we should view each other as we come to the Lord's Supper every week. You should not be able to look at another saint without Christ and what Christ is going to do to them and in them on that day. That's the vision the church should have in coming to the Lord's Supper. So how do, how do we come to the Lord's Supper? We come as unworthy participants in worthy participation with each other, and these five things help us to come with this worthy participation. That worthy participation includes aligning our understanding and our conduct with all that Christ's death impl implies for us and for the rest of the church. 
I'll close with the way that one pastor put it. He says, The scriptures are not barring any who have ever danced with the devil. We all have. You simply cannot come to the table still holding the devil's hand. As long as you are repentant, come to the supper. Be reminded of the cost of your sin. Hate it afresh and be reminded that your Savior has paid the debt. Be reminded of the grace of God that is greater than your sin. Be humbled anew by grace which is staggeringly beyond what you could expect, ask, or think. Allow the truth of free grace to melt your heart and cause you to long all the more for holiness. Why don't we pray together? And uh, as I pray with the, those who are leading the, the music and the, the offering, uh, come forward.